You're in Acts 8. And uh, as you well know, I may not have given myself enough time here, but uh, we're going through the first eight verses. And this is kind of one of those setups for, for the next couple of chapters. Uh, I, I, I guess you know that the Bible follows, because uh, the Holy Spirit's not dumb, right? Right? Is that, that's an understatement. The Holy Spirit is God. He's obviously not dumb. He's omniscient. He knows how to get people to write things down so that you keep moving. And so in these eight verses, he's setting up for a bunch of stuff. It's actually going to go on for about five chapters after this. Uh, all the effects of what we're seeing in these eight verses. So this is kind of a setup. And those are always a little bit harder to preach. It's easy to preach a story or some big event. And, uh, and this is sort of the aftermath of an event, setting up for the next event. Uh, I, I was talking to somebody today, and, and they were saying, I'm always excited and wanting you to go further in, you know, past in the Scriptures. And I said, well, you know how TV show series do it, where there's a small problem that gets kind of introduced, and then there's a big problem. And then the next show, they solve the big problem, and the little problem gets bigger, and they introduce a new problem, and they keep doing that. The book of Acts is a little bit like that. It's like everything that happens, God does a big thing, but at the same time, he's introducing something that's going to happen next. And that's what we see in these, in these verses today. And, and the title today is Habits and Peace or Habits and Persecution. Now, you, you will understand that as we read these scriptures, but... What we do now, we will do later. And what you do not do now, you will not do later under stress. If you're not preparing in peace, you will not perform in stress. That was a good statement. So I write that down, read that back to me sometime. If you're not preparing in peace, you will not perform under persecution or under stress. And, and so I want you to think about that. And here's what I want you to take home with you today. Especially, go ahead, thank you. When, that's not, I did, yeah, that's it, sorry. I thought I changed that. No, I changed the title. When Satan attacks, the church flourishes. Now, I know that doesn't sound like it goes with the other thing, but that's what happens. We see that happening here. Satan just decides, I'm going to jump on the church, full, both feet. He's already tried a few things to cut it off, right? And number one, he killed, tried to kill, well, he killed Jesus. And Jesus came back from the dead, which was a bummer to the devil. And then the Holy Spirit came. The church grew from, you know, 120 people to 3,000. So the two main leaders arrested, Peter and John. <clears throat> that didn't help. Then they arrest all the apostles. That didn't help. And then they kill Stephen, who's preaching and being effective. And that certainly didn't help because it leads us to today. So would you stand with me? <clears throat> and remember, this is only about a year after Jesus' death when all this is occurring. And so let's look at the first eight verses. And Saul approved of his execution. Now that could have been tacked under the last chapter, and probably it should have been literarily, um, but it makes a good bridge. So it's in the first part of the first verse of my Bible. It says, And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, there were uh, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him and saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits, uh, when they, I'm sorry, 
They paid attention when they saw what was happening uh, because unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed in verse 8. So there was much joy in that city. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I thank you uh, for your word. Lord, indeed, um, your word speaks to us every day as if uh, you, <laughs> which you are, you're with us. That you, you see our lives, you know our needs. Lord, uh, you, you, you understand uh, all of what man is. And so you've given us exactly what we need written down in your word. And Lord, if history teaches us anything, it teaches us the men uh, do not change. Their, the, their nature remains the same uh, at, except for when we're redeemed. And then we, we are made a new creature in Christ. Uh, the devil never has a new playbook. He keeps doing the same things over and over and over, and uh, which shows how dumb he is. Uh, and you are fresh and new every morning. And so, Lord, we just thank you in Jesus' name for your grace and mercy to us. And, uh, and we ask that this day your Holy Spirit would fall on us fresh. Lord, that you would open our eyes of understanding of whole wonderful things out of your word. And that, God, uh, you would anoint my mouth and my, and, and my words, Lord. Uh, not that I would say my words, but I would say your words. And that the meditation of my heart and the words of my mouth would be acceptable in thy sight. For you are our Lord and our Redeemer. You are the Christ, and we acknowledge you as that. In Jesus' name, amen. Y'all be seated. And... Uh, you know, that's what they're killing these people for, is that they're, they're saying Jesus is the Christ. And, and, and indeed, Satan attacks the church. Uh, there's a church father named Tertullian, and he said this, the, seed, the blood of the martyrs is the, is the seed of the church. That when, when blood is spilled, that's what I did have as the title, but it was so long, so I shortened it. That's what confused me there. Uh, but but whenever, whenever blood is spilled by Christians, it emboldens other Christians. Uh, last week, I mentioned the five men that were killed in South America. And, and, and there's just a rundown of people who, when they heard that news, said, I will go, I will go, I will go, I will go. And just lives were changed just because those men were, were killed in martyrdom. And, and so this is the very first case, and we see it happening. And as I said, God is setting us up for some things that are coming. And so we'll see that as we go. But the first thing we see is the persecution arises. Now, up to the now, the people have been aggravated, but there's been no persecution. Uh, you know, uh, people would probably fight against them. They would argue against them. They would, didn't like them. They'd been arrested, but they got released. They got beaten a couple times, but, but they counted that as a great deal uh, that God counted them worthy to suffer, and they were excited about that. But now they come down, and they got serious, and they kill Stephen. And you know, it's sort of like that click. It just... Now it's on. It gets real in chapter 8, verse 1. I mean, it is getting, it's, it's on. And it hasn't changed. In the 1900s, more people died for their faith than died from Stephen until 1900. You've got to understand, there's more people for that to happen to, number one. But persecution's on the rise. It's not waning. Uh, communism killed millions of people in the 1900s. Uh, in, in Russia and China and Vietnam and Cambodia and Laos and Laos and in, in certain South American countries and, and African nations and Christians and, and other religious people, but Christians were put to death by the millions in the 1900s. And that persecution continues today, not just under communism, but under Islam and other things. And, and every day, someone is either put to death in prison. We hear a few stories of people being released and, and they get to flee, but... 
but, uh, but it hides underneath that uh, an iceberg of, of martyrs being killed. And in, in when, just when Stephen was killed, it says there, and it introduces, and Saul approved of his death. They, they told, you know, Saul kind of held their coats. They put them at his feet. They laid them there. Watch our coats while we kill this dude. And Saul approved of what was going on. Now, I don't know if it's ever struck you, but what, who is Saul that he gets to approve? Well, don't forget, he's the student of the A number one rabbi, what am alive at that time, Gamaliel. Right? Amen? You remember? Okay, just let me know you're still here. Good. Uh, so Gamaliel, and he was a student of the best rabbi that ever lived, the guy that's quoted in all Jewish literature. Well, Gamaliel was his student, and Saul is his student. And remember we said things kind of got set up where, where when, they, when the Sanhedrin arrested all the apostles, and then Gamaliel, Saul's teacher, is the guy that kind of gets them off the hook. And says, hey guys, you know, if we kill them, you may be fighting against God if this is from God. And if it's not from God, it'll die on its own. So just let them go. Don't worry about it. And they agreed to do that. And I just speculated, I, I don't know this from Scripture, that that may have disappointed Saul a little bit. Have you ever had a teacher you admired and then found out something really bad about them and it just kind of ruined them? I've had pastors like that in my life. I've had teachers like that in my life. Where it just seems to negate everything and it makes you feel bad, but it also makes you a little angry. Like, how dare you do that? And it's really hard sometimes to get over those things and uh, to, to realize that they're human like you are. You know, we love to criticize people who don't sin like us, right? And, uh, and that, that's just a reality as well. So Saul sees all that, and now we got one of them, and it's like something clicks. Saul approves of his death, and there arose on that day. A great persecution. There is no time wasted. Saul approved it, but they're going to scatter the people. They, a, a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now, growing up, I heard a lot of sermons about this. And maybe you did too. I don't know. I feel dried out this morning. I'm sorry about that. And maybe you did too that... Oh, the church was just sitting around, and God had told them to go into all the world, and they weren't going, so he brought persecution and sent them out. No. They got saved a year ago out of, out of Judaism from around the world. They had to learn for at least a year before they were ready to go anywhere. Don't forget that. We get this idea. We do it in church. Somebody gets saved, and we expect them to act like they've been saved for 50 years. Right? And in, in many cases, like, and the worse the sinner, the more we want to bring them up here and let them give a testimony. You know, many spiritual immature necks break when they fall off the stage. Some celebrity gets saved and we all go, wow, they got saved. And we act like they, they are, you know, the Apostle Paul. No, they're a baby in Christ. They need to be isolated and taught and learned. And you don't usually hear much about those people because they go off the radar and then they grow and then they pop back up later. Kirk Cameron would be a good positive example of that. When he first got saved, he went and, and insulted every person on his television show that made him famous. This is his testimony, not mine. I'm not saying this against him. And he went back and had to apologize and said, look, I was just zealous and I apologized. And now, of course, he teaches other people how to share their faith in a, in a very good way. And, and so 
so we, we get that idea, and I don't want you to have that idea about the church. The church is learning daily from the apostles. They're, getting, they're figuring this out. Now, I'm not saying God doesn't use persecution. Obviously, he does. Just like a mama eagle, he'll tear up your nest so it's uncomfortable to stay in it. Y'all know how an eagle gets their babies to fly, right? When they build their nest, they cover it with feathers and down, all that stuff. I, I guess when they kill geese, they keep their down. I'm not sure. Um, how do you get down from an elephant? You don't. You get down from a duck. Um, so anyway, so they, they'll line their nest to make it comfortable for the babies. Well, when, they, when it's time for them to fly, they start pulling all that stuff out. So all the sticks and thorns and all. And so they, ugh, they can't lay down in that nest anymore. They got to stand up. And they make it uncomfortable, get them to the edge. And then they kick them off the side. And the baby goes, wah! You know, and the mom eagle comes down, catches it, brings it back up. And goes, flap your wings, dummy. Kicks them again, you know. Oh, I can fly. And that's how they do it. Well, God does that to us sometimes, doesn't he? He tear up your nest, make you uncomfortable. So you got to kind of... What, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? Just so you'll be willing to move. Because you get comfortable, man. You know, I, I, I love athletics. And, and I, exer- you know, I, I participate in those at every commercial break running to the refrigerator. It's just, <laughs> you know, that, that we, we get comfortable, man, on that couch, that chair. We come to church. We get comfortable at church. Okay, I'm going to quit preaching and go to meddling a little bit. We get comfortable with the people we know, the Sunday school class maybe we're in, the place we sit in church, you know. If somebody can't, if you can't, if some people, they come in church, somebody's sitting in their seat, and they think, you know, that, that person must be a sinner, because obviously they don't know that's your seat, you know. We, 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 get, we, we think we've got to dress a certain way, you know, and we get comfortable with our routines that have nothing to do with the Bible, gospel, or growing in, in faith. So this church, I don't think, was actually comfortable, but in a sense they were. They had seen their leaders arrested a couple times, but now it's on. One of them has been put to death, and persecution arises. They go, it's time to leave Dodge City, and they take off. And they just spread out. They start going other places, and the people scattered. And then in verse 2, it says that Stephen was buried. And I never knew this. I was reading a commentary, and it brought this out. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. There's two things about that I didn't know. Number one, that word devout is used by Luke and Acts to refer to devout Jews many times. And it's not usually applied to Christians. So this may not have even been the Christians burying Stephen. Because remember, just like the guys in the upper room after Jesus died, Stephen died and they're all like, we're ghosts. And they, they just went hiding. So this may have been people from his old synagogue that showed up to take him away because they're making great lamentation. Christians lament, obviously, but for the Jewish people, they had developed it into an art form. They had people you paid to lament for you because you got to make a lot of noise. You following me? So my point is only this, that, that that may not have even been the Christians that buried him, but here's the thing I didn't realize. It was, it was against Jewish law to lament over someone who'd been stoned. So whoever did this, either God led them to do it, or they were saying to those leaders, you, made them, you, you were wrong. This guy deserves our respect. And it, and it shows how respected Stephen was that people did that. Because they were breaking the laws of Israel uh, to do that at that time. Just a, maybe a minor point, but I, I want you to understand, Stephen is the, one of the biggest heroes of the Bible. He's the first guy to be put to death for his faith that has that opportunity and he doesn't fail at it he he goes through with it and as we 
looked at it before, you, you know all the things that happened. But they made a great lamentation. But then the next verse lets us know that Saul goes berserker. I mean, he is a he is just a an agent of destruction. Notice what it says. But Saul was traveling, uh, ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, it doesn't say how many Saul killed. Later on, he says that he put them to death. Um, and by his testimony, we know that he did kill some of them. The Bible doesn't, hold, doesn't lay a big charge on him. God doesn't want us to think of Saul as that. Saul admits he murdered. He admits what he did. But the Bible doesn't paint him in such a bad picture that it's hard for you to get over it. Uh, in a way of speaking. But there's a hint here. This word, ravaging the church. That word, ravaging, this is the only place in the New Testament where that word is used. It's a Greek word. If I tell you the Greek word, it wouldn't matter to you, so I'm not going to do it. But it is a word that in the Bible is only used there. And in extra-biblical literature, in other literature, it means to totally destroy a city. It's Hiroshima, Nagasaki, just level it. It is to utterly destroy something. They're ravaging the city. And Saul is doing that. Now, that's how bad he is. And he's not the city. He's ravaging the church that way. He's snatching out every Christian he can find, getting them put in prison, probably some short process and then killing them. Uh, They're being killed. And it is on him that he does that. What is God setting up for the next chapter? When Saul gets saved, right? Which is a good thing. That helped, that helped the church. But, but you got to understand, so this persecution arises, and God wants to see that. All of a sudden, wham, they're under, they're under fire. And so they, they go to ground, right? They run and they hide. They, they get away. No, that's not what they did. Look at the next verse. You see, the preaching continued. And, and by the way, it says, well, we'll see it. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Up there, it says they all were scattered except the apostles. I, I, I didn't say anything about that. But the apostles weren't scared. They'd been arrested. They'd shown they weren't scared. They had stood up to their author- those authorities. They weren't afraid at all. Why did they stay there? They stayed there so that they could maintain the unity of the, they're the headquarters. And they're making sure that things are going good. And they're probably encouraging people, get out, get out, get out. Uh, because it's really hot and heavy in Jerusalem right now, so go somewhere else. And, uh, and, and so they're running out, and the apostles stayed there, so there would be a, a, a unifying force still there. And in verse 4, and those who were scattered went, and they hid, and they, they sought refuge, and they ran to caves and mountains and made sure nobody could find them. No, they're preaching the word. They didn't even slow down. We, we were on vacation one time, and uh, with Janice's mom uh, helped our family and her son's family. Many times we'd do these big vacations together. She would, um, in all her generosity, buy a house or a place. She had a timeshare thing. We'd go to Disney World, different places, and because of her generosity. And I forget where we were one time, but we were somewhere, and we'd been outside. It was on a lake. We had a lake house or something, and... We'd been going outside, sitting on the beach and everything. And then one day it rained. And, and mom was sitting under a shelter in a chair. And I said something about the weather. She said, rain doesn't change what I do. It just changes where I sit. <laughs> I wrote that down. I got that written down somewhere. I thought that was great. What you do now, you will do later. What you don't do now, you won't do later. 
this is human nature. And this is so much common sense. Because within what I just said is the key to making things better in your life. Because as long as you do what you do, you will get what you get. That's another way we say that, right? I've, I've been a church consultant. And, and, and I heard another church consultant say, Before I look at anything, before I talk to anybody, there's one thing I already know about your church. You are perfectly designed and organized and staffed to get the results you're getting. You want different results? Change what you're doing. I like the way Henry Blackaby says this in Experiencing God. He said, you can't go with God and stay where you are. So here's what I'm saying to us, applying this to us. If persecution arose and we were scattered, what would you do? You see, because no longer can you get up, put it on a suit, and go down to the church building. So what does your Christianity mean outside of being here on a Sunday morning, dressed up, sitting in a room with no fear of persecution? And if a crazy man came in here, we got enough police and former police and Marines and all that to take care of the situation, and not many of us would get hurt, hopefully. So we don't really even have fear, even if a nut came in here. But what if everything goes sideways and we come under persecution? What are you going to do? You can't put on your suit and come to church on Sunday morning. You can't dress up, look nice. We won't have those potluck dinners anymore. Probably won't be doing follow palooza next year. What does your Christianity mean outside of showing up on a Sunday morning? And if you don't have a good answer to that, then we need to change some things. And I, that's the collective we. I'm including myself in that. If, if, if all your Christianity means is you get up on Sunday and you come, I put in my hour, I'm going home. Hopefully you at least put in two hours, go to Sunday school, but about 170 people show up here that don't. So we, we want everybody to do that. They didn't change what they did. They're, they're under persecution. Hey, fresh meat. Look, we're in a city. Nobody's ever heard this before. Let's start preaching. And they continue. It was a change of scenery, not a change of character. And the habits you form now are the habits you'll perform later. You say, well, you're making too big a point of that. Okay, well, obviously you feel guilty. But Daniel, y'all remember the story of Daniel. It's in chapter, uh, I wrote it down, chapter 6. And I, I, won't, I won't read the whole story, but, you know, people who live godly suffer persecution. People come against them. And Daniel, he's living godly. He was a thorn in the flesh to all these people that, 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 uh, that were not following God's will. And they said to themselves, amongst themselves, we won't be able to get Daniel on anything except something that is associated with his God. So they... They got the king to make a decree that you couldn't pray to anybody but the king. And the king, being a vain egomaniac, said, sure. <laughs> I'll sign that legislation. Everybody's got to pray to me. And here's what it says in verse 10 of chapter 6 of the book of Daniel. You don't have to turn there. You can write down Daniel 6 read it when you go home. But when Daniel knew the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed 
and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Isn't that cool? You like that, don't you? I like that. That's awesome. So tomorrow, persecution arrives. Tomorrow, they say, you can't say the name of Jesus at work. Well, for some of you, you go, no problem. I haven't said it yet. <laughs> right? A friend of mine is a teetotaler. His, all his kids are teetotalers. That, if you don't know what that is, that means you totally only drink tea. I don't actually know what it means. I just made that up because I didn't know what it meant, but... But, but he doesn't drink alcohol. His kids don't drink alcohol. One of his kids put a thing up on Facebook when I said, if, if, you could, if you would be given a billion dollars, but you could never buy alcohol again, could you do it? And all the kids were like, I already do that. What are you talking about? You know, just kind of like jumping on their sister. Janice jumped in there and said, does that include rubbing alcohol? Because that's a deal breaker. <laughs> you know, uh, just kind of as a joke. But, but here's my point. All of a sudden, oh, you can't. Really? Well, so you're going to give in to that? See, that's what the church has done. We backed up because we're afraid of offending somebody. It's time we offended people, not by being offensive, but just by living out the life God called us to live. We keep wanting extraordinary Christians. If we just lived a normal Christian life, we'd be doing better than we are right now. At least by the standard of the book of Acts. And so the scenery changed, but here's the question. Has God changed? I mean, talking about change of scenery, you go on vacation and you do some things you might not would do normally because you're not at home and you're not, you're, you're not afraid you're going to run into somebody. I have run into people I know everywhere in the world, okay? I just assume God's always got somebody watching me because it seems that way. The other day in a parking lot, somebody did something that's like my pet peeve and I didn't react, thankfully. Praise God. And I got out of my car. They got out of their car and said, Hey, Pastor. I went, Oh, gosh. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I didn't do something ugly. God's got people everywhere, doesn't he? I was getting on a plane in Argentina. I didn't know the person, but I'm walking up. The stewardesses are saying, Hello, stewardess, stewardess. I don't know. I guess you call them something else today. Don't come jump on me. They're steward and stewardess to me. But I'm getting on the plane, and they're going, hello, hello, welcome, welcome. And we're all going, hi, hi. And I said, hey. And I went to go on. The guy goes, you're from Charleston, aren't you? I said, what? He said, I could tell by the way you said that. You're from Charleston. I went, yeah, I am. That's weird. I'm in Argentina. I'm like, are you kidding me? I mean, everywhere I go, there's somebody there watching. So... When you get somewhere else, or if you're forced to go, did God change? No. Look at what God does. Philip. Philip is the only guy in the Bible called the evangelist, or an evangelist. Okay, now, Paul says to Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. There is evangelism happening. Other people do the same work. But Philip's the only guy who gets the title. I don't know why. Just a side note. But Philip goes down to the city of Samaria. You know what is unique about Samaritans, right? They're half Jewish, half Gentile. You following that? Because you're going to need to remember that next week for next week's sermon. And he goes down to Samaria. Pretty smart deal because the Jewish leaders are not going to go to Samaria. Y'all remember the story of the woman at the well? Samaritan woman, right? And the Bible says Jesus said we, he must go through Samaria. No, he didn't have to. Most people didn't do it, but he said, I got to. Goes down there, meets a woman at the well. 
reveals her life to her. She gets saved. People in the town get saved or, or, or accept Jesus as the Messiah. And so Philip goes, led by the Spirit, I believe, because he's the guy that just goes out in the wilderness and witnesses to the Ethiopian eunuch, and he goes to other places. And his, he had four daughters. All of them were prophetesses. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Messiah, the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. Unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. Don't forget that either because that's going to come in the next time too. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. I just got to ask myself, Again, that same question I've already asked you. Has God changed? Why does not... A wise man told me he asked himself this phrase a lot. Why does the power of God not rest on me to do what God wants done? You ought to ask yourself that question. Why doesn't the power of God rest on me to do the basics? Read my Bible, pray, give, attend, witness. And then why doesn't the power of God rest on me to see people come to know Christ and grow in their faith around me because of my influence? Now, that's not even like supernatural works like healing and demonic, getting rid of demons. Which if you don't believe in demons, that's because they got you so much, you, they don't even have to convince you anymore because they've already convinced you they don't exist. That's his best weapon. The devil is real, and he's got plenty of people, plenty of demons to help him. Look at the effectiveness of Philip and ask yourself, why am I not effective? Just a point. Not, not what he did, but the fact that he was effective. Are you effective? Has God changed, or maybe we're not walking with God like we should? Maybe we're back up at the top, where we have not been developing the habits we should develop so that we are doing the things that we ought to be doing because everything you do is a habit. But I love the last verse. I'm kind of fussing at you. I don't mean to fuss at you. I'm just asking myself these questions. Verse 8. So there was much joy in that city. Salvation doesn't bring a downer. It brings joy. It brings happiness. And, and I, I, you know, I, I don't know how it all happened. It would be a history lesson if I did. But, but somewhere, people got the idea that Christians are against stuff. You know, our nature is that we're just against stuff. We want to ruin everybody's good time. Nobody wants to have fun. You know, Jesus' very first miracle was making water into wine at a wedding. Sunday school teacher asked her class, why did Jesus turn the water into wine? The little boy said, because he wanted the party to keep going. I mean, Jesus died on a cross and rose from the dead. I, I remember a song back from my childhood that said, and still... The celebration goes on. 2,000 plus years later. We don't come to church, dress up, sit here. When is he going to be done and go home? We're here to celebrate the resurrection Sunday by Sunday by Sunday. That's why I get excited singing these songs. We didn't even really sing a super fast song today. But man, the words of those songs. I was about ready to jump out of my skin. They were so good talking about God and who he is and what he's done for us. This is a celebration, and joy comes with salvation. We ask ourselves a hard question. I sound like I was fussing. I was just criticizing myself, letting you listen in, and asking you those hard questions. Well, what can we do about all these little facts? I'm telling you, this, this is leading to the next five chapters. Everything, 
Almost everything in there is going to associate with something in the next five chapters. Well, first of all, it's obvious to me, build habits of godliness and obedience. Figure out what it is God wants you to do and discipline yourself to make a schedule and start keeping that schedule. My wife and I try to do things and, you know, life happens, right? And, and you quit doing things that you know you ought to do. And so every once in a while, we've got to reset it. And tomorrow morning, we're going to reset it. We're going to go somewhere and do something we need to be doing. Before day clean, probably. I'm sorry, uh, dawn. Day clean is dawn. I say day clean. Um, before the sun comes up. Because you've got to reset it every once in a while. And say, no, we've got to do that. Problem is, when you start doing that, something else goes wrong, right? It's, it's sometimes hard to keep it all straight. But start building habits. You build habits by doing it over and over and over for a couple of months. You do it for, I promise, you do it a month, it'll become a habit. Then be faithful to your habit in every circumstance. If you decide you want to witness to one person a day or one person a week, then start doing it. But what if somebody yells at you, or tells you they don't want to hear it, or calls you names or threatens you smile say thank you for your input and do it anyway just keep doing it no matter what happens my, my father growing up I, I, I I'm just gonna say it my dad got up he, he took him five minutes to walk to work he left at 10 minutes to eight was at work by five minutes to eight walking and clocked in and was at work my dad got up at 5 o'clock every morning just to read his Bible. He would stay up and watch the evening news, which where I lived was over at 10.30, I believe, or no, 11.30, I guess. He'd go to bed at 11.30, but before he went to bed, he was on his knees. Because back then, you know, you couldn't get news. For you young people, we used to have to wait on the news to come on at 11 o'clock, find out what happened. And so when the news went off, he would go kneel by his bed and pray. My dad, when he retired, there was another guy that he worked with that retired at the same time. And they asked that other guy, what are you going to do in retirement? He said, I'm going to sit on the porch in my house on the river and watch birds and drink whiskey. So they gave him a birdhouse and a fifth of jack. My dad retired. They gave him a Bible. Because he carried one at work and witnessed to people at work every day, all the time. What's your habit? Do your habit. What do you live for? Be faithful in your habits. And then, for goodness sake, for the sake of Jesus Christ, express your joy of salvation. And if you don't have any, then you've got a big problem. You've got another problem, because the joy of the Lord is our strength. And the Bible says part of the fruit of the Spirit. You're not exhibiting part of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, kindness meekness and then fourthly I just want to put this in here I got a fourth one for you pray for the persecuted church we saw it dramatically just a couple weeks ago they were going to put put a preacher to death in Iran our president brought severe uh, consequences if you do that and they let him go Okay, what count time served? Get out. And he came home. I don't know if you saw that guy praying for the president. Because they brought him into the, you know, the Oval Office or whatever, whatever that little room is. 
just like, hey, he got free and all that. And he said, can I pray for you? And he said, sure. And he puts his hand on him and he bows and he prays. Why? Because it was that guy's habit to pray. You know, I, if, if you brought me in front of a celebrity or politician like the president, I, I don't care who he is. I liked him or not, I'd be pretty awestruck. I'm, that's the president. Y'all remember there was a, a collegiate team that went up there and they looked at the president and said, hey, we want to pray for you. And they gathered around and prayed for him. A bunch of young men. That was awesome. Why? Because they had the habit of praying. And there's a persecuted church out there that we ought to have the habit of praying for. Because our brothers and sisters are being put to the sword every day. While we are comfortable in our lounge chairs watching the sermon, and then we get tired of this sermon, we click channels, change churches, go to another church we can get comfortable in. Oh, this is a little bit more comfortable. We'll put the remote down for a little while until we don't like something here, and we'll click and go to another one. Now I'm really meddling, aren't I? 